So great to connect with you, Andrew May. So excited to have a chat today and uh, welcome to Where To From Here. How are you doing? Dr. Jody, is it Dr. Jody or can I be a little bit more less formal? You can be less formal so long as it's uh, not a four-letter word or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jody, we've been talking about this for a while and it's great to reciprocate. I recently had you on my podcast and it's a great way to get to know someone. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. A little bit nervous. I get a bit nervous when I get interviewed. I think I'm more comfortable now interviewing rather than being the interviewee. Yeah, isn't it interesting? I feel exactly the same way. And it's funny, I love to reframe nerves as you care. And speaking of four-letter words, you give a shit, right? Mm. <laughs> if there weren't the nerves there, it would potentially mean that people aren't potentially as invested in the interview. So I'm so thrilled to hear that. And also we were talking before coming on uh, the show just now about vulnerability and about the power of authenticity. Um, let's go there straight away. I would love to hear more about in your wisdom, which is so vast, you've spoken with and worked with so many people about the power of vulnerability. What are some of the thoughts that come up? Please, champ, no warm up. Let's just get straight into it with vulnerability. Get straight huh? in. <laughs> well, why not? Cut <laughs> to the that. chase. So, I'm going to give you two sides of vulnerability and then I'll give you my experience. The first side is I love Brene Brown. When I first heard her talking about how she did a PhD and she was looking at courage, she ended up having an emotional breakdown and realized it was about being vulnerable and that was being courageous for her. So, that's the first time I really looked at some of the research and depth behind vulnerability, being your true authentic self. So I love Brene Brown. Ridiculous, right? When you look at what you and I do, podcasting, book speaking, she's just an absolute global rock star. So I love Brene Brown, love that she put vulnerability on the map. Mm. Here's what I don't like. I had a very senior partner at a large consulting firm earlier this year say to me, Maisie, look, can you come and do some speaking work with me? He said, you speak pretty proper and stuff. He said it quite joking. He said, I'd like to be more like you, the way you speak. And I said, oh, look, I've done it for years. And I, I I know some of what I do and some of it I've trained and some might be natural, but look, I'm happy to come and have a look. And he started really well, Jody. He had an audience and they were all listening. And this is a guy who's traditionally not shown emotion, not shown feeling. My generation is that, that cutoff point. Like I look at my dad, uh, post-World War II era, and they didn't show their emotions, whereas guys my age are getting in touch. I look at my son. Oh, my God, they're just hybrid models. So this guy's up there and he's starting a good job. And then, then he said, now, let me be vulnerable with you. And I'm up the back and I'm like, I didn't say this, but inside I'm like, no, no, you don't say let me be vulnerable with you. Mm -hmm. So I just want to frame before we talk about it. I think vulnerability is amazing. I think you've got to be careful, though, and do it in an authentic way because I yeah. do see a lot of people now say, oh, let me be vulnerable, or the Instagrammers, yeah. and, hey, I've got a social following. I want to be vulnerable and connect with people. So <laughs> it's 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 authentic vulnerability. So anyway, I got my yes. mate and pulled him aside and said, if I ever see you do that again, I will punch you in the ribs. You, know, yes. you show vulnerability through authenticity and action mm -hmm. and dropping your facade and being a real person, and especially when you work in a an area like consulting and a lot of the areas that you and I do work in a crossover, construction, building, uh, banking and finance, telcos, the startup world. People now want a manager that's mm -hmm. real or a leader that's real, not got to hold their stuff together. No one actually has that. 
So mm. there's my frame on vulnerability. I think it's great. I love Brene Brown's research. For anyone listening mm. to this, just be cautious that you use it in the right way, mm. not trying to use it as a marketing lever or, hey, I'm going to be vulnerable, drop my guard, and I'll mm. get eyeballs or I'll get clicks. Yeah, such a great point. And the power of vulnerability is, you know, it is that I love what you say about the paradox of I'm going to pretend to be vulnerable, <laughs> you know, the or inauthentic authenticity. Uh, but yes, the power of connection and in this really overwhelming, over-digitized world, what we crave for as human beings is authentic connection. It's mm -hmm. critical and it's it's the heart in leadership. Um, so yeah, authentic leadership, authentic connection is so incredibly important. And I'd love to hear more about you and vulnerability uh what when you think about yourself in that context what comes up for you a lot and you and i regularly catch up and go for a walk and talk in centennial park i think it's more talking and walking because you and i get excited and we want to take on the world so <laughs> next time I'll, I'll say hey let's do a talk and walk rather than a walk and talk and then i started <laughs> to share this story to you and it got me thinking about it up until the age of almost 40 I'd been the high achiever. I was good at sport at school. I had won multiple state championships. I then went and worked as an assistant coach down in Tasmania at the AIS. I'd been good at education, good at study. I'd been good at business. By 40, I'd built and sold a couple of businesses. So I had this schema that I'm the high performance guy. Mm -hmm. I'd been good at relationships. I was working with the Australian cricket team. I'd been working with some other professional sporting teams. And then suddenly I went through a marriage breakdown. Mm -hmm. And I also come from an Irish Catholic background. So my grandfather, God bless his soul, Paddy Flynn, can't get much more Irish than Patrick Flynn. <laughs> so it. Poppy Pat had seven people of the cloth in his family. He had a brother who was a priest. He had a sister who was a Carmelite nun, the strict Carmelite nuns in Wagga Wagga who didn't speak. So I'd grown up in, in, a, in a Catholic family, and it doesn't mean I've been to church regularly. I do the traditional, keep my mum happy. It's every Easter, every Christmas. If mum's listening to this, she knows that. Uh, but I had that whole, that, that schema and that set of beliefs. My mum and dad are still together. They've been married for 52 years. Mm. So then when I went through a marriage breakdown, mm. I felt like a failure because I'd built up this whole story or if I get deeper from a psychology point of view, it was wired, hard wiring. My schema was I'm a high performer and I fix shit. So mm. I've done well in different parts of my life and I'm the guy you hire to help you when you step into a CEO role or you're playing cricket for Australia or you're playing AFL professionally. Mm. And then I went through a marriage breakdown mm. and then I felt like a failure. And because I hadn't had much adversity growing up, Jodie, Life was good. We weren't rich, but we were rich as far as yeah, love from mum and dad and rich as far as sport and growing up in little communities like Glenness, Yass, Wagga and Dubbo. So it was a, it was a charmed life, I'd realised now, compared to some of my friends who I'd met in later life, and you realise some of the trauma people have in their upbringing. Mm. So I didn't know how to process it. The, the only other real challenge I'd had was cancer. I had a melanoma on my left shoulder and... I got the diagnosis. I had uh, an excision. I had lymph nodes removed. I had to wait a couple of months to go get the second assessment. It was all clear. Mm. But I thought I'm either going to die. I was very dichotomous. I'm either going to die with cancer or I'm going to live. 
Mm. And just in a crazy sort of coincidence with my spiritual father, a beautiful man named Bruce Eaton. Mm. Bruce was my massage therapist when I was uh, down at the Tasmanian Institute of Sport Training and coaching down there. But he was mm. much more than that. Bruce was well ahead of his time. We were doing ice baths and talking about heat therapy. Uh, he was doing flotation tanks. Like Bruce was out there. He was a hippie. Um, and, and we loved him. And he introduced us to all these new ways of recovery. Mm. Two days after my diagnosis, Bruce got diagnosed with a melanoma on his right shoulder, half the size of mine. He died in October that year. Oh, wow. And every time I tell this story, I feel a wave of emotion. And it's mm-hmm. it, it's real. Because mm. I just think, how am I still here and Bruce is not? Mm. And, and, and my melanoma was double the size of his. So that was the real, the only real adversity I've had was, hey, I got diagnosed with cancer, but then I got through it. And I don't think I really processed it because, as I said, I was quite dichotomous. Mm. My, 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 my spiritual father got cancer and died. Uh, I didn't, and I, and I still lived. And, yeah, I had the post-cancer fatigue or there's a post-cancer depression. If you're digging into the research, not functioning depressed, it's just making meaning and you have a bit of funk after. And then I got on with it. But it didn't really challenge me like lots of life challenges. So when this hit me with the story that I'm the high performance guy and suddenly if I, if I knew you back then and I saw you and you said, oh, how are you going? Oh, I've gone through a marriage breakdown, marriage failure. Yeah. I felt like a failure. I felt judged. I felt people would think I'm full of shit. Yeah. I felt people won't go to my keynotes. They won't read my books. I just started doing work on Today's Show. No one's going to watch Channel 9. I was an idiot. Like, how wrong was I? thinking that I had to put on this facade that I had everything right. So I look at myself as you know, before that time and after that time. And while I had 18 months after we, we separated and with two kids, it, it is, it's horrible, horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and just the dislocation. And 18 months after, my best mate Mario asked me a question and I answered and he said, mate, you don't sound like you're okay. And I, I denied it and he said, Andy, you know it's okay to not always be okay. So mm. he's one of my besties from Dubbo, actually leaning in, showing emotion. And then I ended up going and seeing a wonderful psychologist named Jill who really helped mm. me unpick, unpack, deconstruct all the bullshit models I'd had about high performance, high achievement, Mm-hmm. It's win at all costs, don't show any weakness. Uh, you know, it's the old 80s, 90s, early 2000s mantra in corporate world. Leave your shoes and leave your emotions at the door, young fella, young woman. Just come in here and be robust and strong. Mm. Um, I'll take a breath. I'm quite <laughs> patient on this. Yeah. And it was a huge lesson for me, huge wow. lesson. So much there, so much there to unpack in and of itself in the, in terms of the experiences and the lessons learned and so I'm really curious to know around sort of what age were you when these let's say three experiences happened in your life uh with Mickey so she's now 15 so I was 35 Mm. with cancer experience 39 and a half because I was in the middle of the worst funk I've ever been in for my 40th birthday and I did nothing and I had some friends saying hey let's have a party and I was just like I just want to crawl up and not do anything mm. um and then yeah so then add on top of that 18 months after where I you know pulled my head out of the proverbial and then went and did some work around this and actually understanding that you know life is about the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs mm. and, and what's interesting now so sort of jump forward when I sit down with an athlete or I sit down with a, a founder or I sit down with a a CEO of a you know top 20 ASX company, 
and they ask, tell me about your story or what have you had with adversity? I talk about a CAS ad. So my life up until 40 had been top hits. It was the A-side. So anyone listening to this, if you're at Gen Y, ask mum and dad. But we used to have a thing called a cassette when we were young, and the A-side was your top hits. The B-side was the songs you hadn't released yet or the songs that weren't quite so great that made up the numbers. Mm. But I don't actually believe it's like that for us in life. The B-side, it's the challenges. It's when you need to dig deep. It's the stuff that really tests you, and you learn so much more out of that. So much so more. true, so true. You know, whether it's sort of a, my own personal experiences or my work um, in in a in a coaching or a clinical psychology role, it's where people go through trauma that the power of post traumatic growth. I think if you can work through it, and as tough as it is, the wisdom that comes from trauma is profound absolutely profound and these experiences that you describe I'm I'd love to hear a little bit more first of all the cancer diagnosis age 35 I think you said Mm. Um, and then you having the cancer diagnosis and someone who you had enormous respect for passing away six months after was it the context, the time frame? Six yeah, it was. His, his melanoma had metastasized and yes. then spread through his body, he had an open wound, and then it just took control. And in in your own diagnosis, how did you, what strategies did you use to work through that and respond from what you're describing with quite profound resilience in that experience? What was going on there for you? And, and, and so we don't lose it. There's a question I've got to ask you about what I went through. And I've only thought of this. This is mm. great. You're really getting to reflect. So we'll come back to that. But on the marriage and the time it took me, I've got a question to ask you. Yes. As, as a uh, very experienced psych and the wonderful work you do. So 35, and I can still remember now, you know, Dr. Peter Wong was at a clinic in Bondi Junction. And mm-hmm. I had a mole on my left shoulder. So when I'd wear a singlet or a, uh, you know, one of those neoprene tops, surf skiing I do quite a lot of paddling on the harbour and it would, would mm. rub on this mole and then Nina um, who I was married to at that stage said he should go get that checked and I it's okay mm. and then a month later I had Andrew go get that checked and mm. I booked in went and saw Dr Wong he did a biopsy he said come back next week so I went back in on Tuesday mm. and I walked into his office and he said four words that literally sat me on my ass those four words were Andrew please sit down Mm. For anyone listening, if they've had those four words, you know what it is. They're about to give you the, the big C. Mm. Andrew, please sit down. You've got a melanoma. We're treating you for cancer. You've got cancer. And I said, whoa, I can remember just being in shock. A melanoma, you just cut that out. He said, Andrew, melanoma for men your age is the number one cancer killer in your category. I don't know what you're doing tomorrow afternoon, but you're cancelling everything. You're going to go and see Dr. Jonathan Stretch, who's one of Australia's leading melanoma experts, and he's a plastic surgeon. Uh, We're going to do a barium X-ray on you early next week. So they're going to put this barium inside you. We want to see where the sentinel nodes are, the main nodes. We think the size of yours, it's 1.3 on the Clark scale. You're probably going to have to have a number of lymph nodes removed as well. Do you have any questions? (laughs) And I can remember as clear as day. Like I went in there to get the all clear that, yeah, look, it may have been just some basal cell uh, carcinoma and they're going to cut it out. 
So well, I'm telling you I got cancer. Like, I just remember sitting there, Jody, and growing up in the country, one of the, the noises, especially in lambing season, I remember so distinctly, is when crows would circle a lamb or a carcass. And when a crow circles, it goes, ah, ah, ah. And when he said to me, Andrew, have you got any questions? All I could think of was, ah, ah. Uh, yeah, I've got cancer. And I was just gobsmacked. Mm. And I said, but what, what do you mean? And he had to say a couple of times, Andrew, you've got cancer. We're treating you for cancer. So I was just in total disbelief mm. at that time. So I was in shock. Mm. So then I saw Dr. Stretch, uh, they operated. Uh, so it was all just so quick. So I didn't really have time to process it. Mm. I can remember telling my mum and, and she just burst into tears because, you know, as a kid, you don't think you're going to tell your parents you've got cancer. No. But that that experience, as I said earlier, I, I was quite naive to it. I, I think now if I went through something like that, I would be much more attuned to it. And, you know, you've got experience with a, you know, yourself with emotions and how to process and work stuff out. Mm-hmm. But then it was, again, life had always been really good. And, and the worst thing I did is I did some research on the internet. Mm. What do people write about Their in relation story. to cancer? Their horror stories. My mum, mm-hmm. my dad, my young daughter. So I remember one night scrolling. And then it, Mario makes another appearance here as well because I saw him the next morning. He said, mate, you look you look pretty tired of your art. And I said, yeah, I was just checking last night. He said, Andy, what are you doing, mate? He said, you know this. Don't Google stuff or don't scroll because yeah. you only see bad news stories. Mm. But then had the treatment and then went through it. So it, I, I don't think I really changed a lot as a person mm. right? because I was quite dichotomous. You know, I, yes. I, I had the cancer treated. And the yeah, treatment it, worked. The treatment worked. the treatment worked. worked and you were able to move on, put it behind you. Um, And it's really interesting, you know, you you sort of described that sense of shock, that shock state, that almost like um, in a clinical, to use a clinical term, dissociation. And in essence, if we talk about vulnerability and we talk about dissociation from emotions or um, it's our brain, and if we bring it to the neuroscience, it's our brain actually trying to protect So fight, flight, freeze is Mm -hmm. our brain trying to protect from threat, in this case, real threat. Sometimes it does it in the case of perceived threat. And it sounds like, you know, that shock and moving into action in the context, it's what it's like what soldiers do on the battlefield is is the I'm just going to go and I'm going to get on with with military precision and that's when that dissociation from the emotions is there to protect it's when we move out of that state of I need to just soldier on into afterwards and processing of emotions and leaning into vulnerability and not pushing it down that's the that's that bit where we get into some difficult water as far as emotions go. Yeah, and I, I didn't percolate in that. And mm. I, I can say this now. I didn't say it at the time. And I, I need to say that because at the time I wasn't thinking what I'm about to tell you. But mm. I, I now look at it. And when I started coaching psychology, which was in that same period, Elizabeth Kubler's Ross Five Stages of Grief. And when I first saw that, I went, oh, my God, that's exactly what happened. I was in shock mm-hmm. to start with. Then I was in denial. 
oh, he's probably made a mistake. I'm going to ring Dr. Wong and, and, and double check with him. And then I went through bargaining. Oh, maybe it's just a small one. And then I felt like a bit sad, uh, especially after you know, the operation, everything had been done. And I also lost my sample. Back then they used to send the sample to America because we didn't have the technology uh, on those trace uh, nodes to see whether the cancer was in my lymph nodes. So they... They sent that off and lost it. So I had to wait an extra six weeks. So that was quite stressful. But mm. then I did have acceptance and went through it. But I'll tell you what is different when I, when I said it didn't impact me much. After that, I, I really did appreciate life. And it was because of Bruce as well. Mm. And I saw, there's my, my buddy, this beautiful man who taught us so much. And I only realise now in some of the teachings he's given that I didn't even realise back then. And I think about Bruce regularly. Mm. It really made me appreciate life. And I, I've always been of the positive side, but I think it mm-hmm. probably pushed me even further. Mm-hmm. And to play and to have fun. And, and you know, I like working hard, but I'll always make sure I have a bit of fun. And I'll always make sure I have some time out. And I'll always make sure I, I, I connect with my buddies. And that's become mm-hmm. a real priority. And, 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 and that absolutely impacted me. And what wonderful wisdom, you know, and that is so often the, um, when we talk about post-traumatic growth, the the growth that comes from it is the not sweating the small stuff to really lean into appreciating life and living life and carpe diem, um, all of these sorts of things. I had um, my, my father passed away from pancreatic cancer and that going through that horror and coming to the other side of that uh, really uh, as as tough as it was, enabled me to have that same wisdom of approach life with mindfulness and just seize the day. So I'm really happy for you that that was the um, experience that you had going through such a difficult life experience, that double difficulty. And I think it's fascinating what you were talking about, Andy, and I'm allowed to call you Andy because you said that it's your best, the best, uh, some of the best people in your life call you Andy. So there you well, go. It's probably interesting. If you followed me for a day, all the athletes and jocks I work with is Maisie. Um, my family, it's Andy. And when I'm in trouble, it's Andrew. Okay, so I will oscillate <laughs> all three. Um uh, the di- the all or nothing thinking uh, that often comes with high performers, and this is a, both a blessing and a curse. And I'd love to hear your thoughts around. And we'll come back to talking about your um, breakup because that obviously was so pivotal in your life as well. Talking to the dichotomy um, of all or nothing thinking, um, it's either perfect or it's an absolute catastrophe. Tell me a little bit more about that and how that has influenced your life and also what you see in the people that you work with in terms of all or nothing thinking? I smile as you ask me that question because I've done some preparation on this, Dr Jody. It's called the last <laughs> 10 to 15 years because when I yeah. didn't realise that I was perfectionistic, perfectionist, there's a real fine line between a perfectionist, which is your win or lose. You're successful or you're not. You, know, you build a great business that makes an impact or your business is shit. Nothing's that black and white. But that, that schema for me was, you know, you either get it perfect or you don't. So I did do some work and some reading and a lot of reflecting on healthy competition. Right? And then the word yet, Carol Dweck talks about yet. Right? So I'm not there yet. So you can still be striving or aiming to achieve, but at the same time, you've got to also stop along the way and smell the flowers. So that's a big thing I did around that age of 35. Mm. And 
what I said to you, you know, I, I looked at life and seizing the day and the opportunity, uh, and you're just helping me catch up with it now. That, that, that was also a time where I really started to look at this whole perfectionistic nature. And it wasn't that I was unhappy, but I'd achieved success in my friend's eyes, but then I was thinking there's always more. So then I started looking at, well, why am I like this? And it was really good, and you know this as well. When you coach, if our clients are listening to this, we love you. We want to keep working with you. Don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. <laughs> but the lessons I've had from coaching, oh, my God, I feel guilty sometimes taking the money because right? you learn so much about yourself when you're coaching others. So I had a lot of these high performers in my late 30s or mid to late 30s, and I, I could see this whole perfectionistic nature in a lot of them. So I was starting to work on that myself to try and dial that down a little bit, but obviously not enough because then linking back into the married story, I still had this, this view that I had to have this external story narrative that I was a successful guy so it had, mm-hmm. it had started but I hadn't got there yet mm-hmm. and what floored me is the view that I had the expert it was all ex external extrinsic mm-hmm. extraneous it was all worried about what other people would think mm-hmm. now part of that was as I said to you Catholic mum and dad were still together so I felt like no you've got to stay together even if you're not happy and part of it was just bullshit story that I'd made that to be who I am, what I'm doing, that people want to see that I've got my shit together. Mm. Now, you know, when I stand up in front of a group, especially if it's a group of men, middle-aged guys, and I'll do the A side, and then you can see people looking at you when I go, you know, done this, work with this team, sold this business, blah, blah. You can see some people looking going, oh, here we go, bloody Anthony Robbins version in Australia, and it's a word that rhymes with banker. You know, what a wanker. Uh, (laughs) But then you flip it over and go, here's my B side. You know, I had cancer went through a marriage breakdown and almost went bankrupt as well because I'm really good at spending, not great at saving. And you suddenly see people go, oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, all right, so he's normal. So mm-hmm. I learned so much through that experience mm. to to show the B-side and not from a vulnerability point of view to get likes and programs and eyeballs, but just to connect with people. Oh, my God, I, I look back and I think, I must have been a bit of a dick (laughs) or Mm. I think I'm a nice guy, but some people must have sat in an audience that I worked in or read some of the stuff that I was doing Mm. and just thought, this guy's just bang, 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 bang. There's there's no oscillation or there's no real connection. Mm. So it was a huge learning. It's a learning that it would have been nice to not have to go through from a pain and with the kids' point of view. But as you said before, trauma can have post-traumatic stress, whereas Martin Seligman has seen working with the US military, a lot of soldiers, men and women, come back from deployment and they had post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Post-traumatic. And what facilitates the difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth in your experience? This is going to make me sound like a politician, but this is that open-loop question I had to go back to you. 18 months is a long time to really struggle and I'd go home I had the kids half the time by the time I didn't have them I'd go back to an apartment so no backyard no dog no kids no wife no connection no purpose and I'd burst into tears for months Mm -hmm. but I'd still rock up to conferences I can remember doing a conference for Land Lease at Magenta Shores and I knew a lot of the people there I'd known them for a few years and I did the keynote and it was it was great like I was lively and, and 
lady Vicky I know came up and said, oh, how do you just look like you're like really coping well? And this mm. is probably nine months after the marriage separation. And I just had this mask on. And I can just remember holding it as I walked into that pressing play, performing, mm. talking to Vicky. And then I went home to, I went back into my room and burst into tears. Mm. Um, because I was in denial and I, and I was just stuck. So mm. the question I've got, did I need to go through that period? Because 18 months is a long time. I'm thinking for mm. your listeners, when you go through big change in your life, whether it's an athlete I'm working with who gets injured or a client I'm working with who goes through a divorce, there's got to be enough time, right, to process emotions and come up with new mental models and reasoning and and to adapt. Mm. But then you obviously get to a time where it's too long. But, mm-hmm. but what, what what would have you told me back then to try and facilitate that 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 growth faster? Mm. Um, wonderful question. And in answer to your question, uh, of course, everybody is has got different experiences, different stories, different cont- contributions to the challenges that they're experiencing. However, what I do know with a, a great amount of experience is that moving through challenge does not have to take ages and ages. All right. So for for people listening, for people watching, uh, the right scientifically supported strategies can have a profoundly positive impact on an individual's life. Mental health challenges are helpable, and it's so it's the power of um, self. It's a power of connection with good professionals, um, the power of connection with community, but it's also the capacity to um, leverage that connection to move out of unhelpful actions, which can often perpetuate, reinforce the challenge into helpful actions. Um, So seeking out the help that you need and not suffering in silence is the first and probably the most important step. I did that. Uh, I, I knew I needed to get out of my own head. And at what stage did you recognise that? I went and saw a psychologist around six or seven or eight months. What was it that led you to making that step? What were you experiencing and would you put any labels on it? Sadness. Mm. Sadness and just loss and emptiness. Yes. And it was as a male psychologist and I, I knew someone else who'd been through a marriage breakdown and he had seen this guy and said he was good, but it just didn't connect, and I didn't, I didn't feel there were any strategies. He mm. just wanted to take me back to childhood and Freudian, and maybe that's the right approach for some people. But I just felt I, I did three sessions, mm. and it was more about family of origin, and, and it, a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. So I'm half there listening, half trying to work out what he's doing with me. Wasn't I just didn't connect with him. Mm. I think that's really, really important. And then, hundred percent. And if we talk about, sorry to to cut you cut you short there. If we talk about the the factors that fundamentally contribute to effect, a positive outcome, you know, it is the power of the coaching relationship or the power of the therapeutic relationship cannot be emphasized enough. And power to you. 
uh, Macy, <laughs> for um, for being empowered in that process and for recognizing this person isn't for me. Because what can so what can happen often is almost like a learned helplessness in the context of coaching or in the context of therapy that says, this is not helping me. I am unhelpable. The problem lies in me. And that really pisses me off, let's say, Mm. because we're all helpable and all deserving of um, connection with the right person or the right toolkit to move out of whether it's depression, burnout, anxiety, stress, relationship challenges, whatever it might be, addiction, into helpful action. So it's definitely the combination of the power of the coaching relationship and the power of the right scientifically supported tools. And often there's a menu of the the different coaching modalities or therapeutic modalities that work. But I'm a get shit done kind of person Um, and uh, I do like to be very practical and make myself redundant as quickly as possible in this in this relationship in terms of coaching or therapy. So you you recognized this was not the right yeah. for you. It was, it was making me frustrated. And then mm. I had another crack a few months later and it was a, a lady. I thought I'll try to go, I'll, I'll try I'll try a lady this time. And then she was more focused on wanting to problems I had with childhood and, and I said no. I was trying to give signs, and it's interesting talking to you and, and you know, getting meta, mm. thinking about what happened then, because I haven't really reflected this deep with anyone like you, sort of asking more questions. Mm. And so I did two sessions with this lady, and it just wasn't helping. And then I went to a lecturer I had at um, Sydney Uni when I was doing my coaching psychology master's, uh, a lovely lady by the name of Susie Green, who had you know, mm. spoken a bit about some of her story, and I thought, Mm. Oh, Susie will know. Susie will know someone to go and see. And I remember ringing her up and just being so sad. And I, I told her my story and she shared a few things that I won't share because I don't have permission. And it was really helpful. And then mm-hmm. she gave me uh, contact with Jill McNaught. And Jill knows I've spoken about this in the public domain before. And Jill was wonderful because I got in there and she's a psychologist, but she also does executive coaching. So mm-hmm. what I know now for people like me, like you, going through real hard periods through trauma. We, we need some triage, but we also need some action steps. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll explain that, you know, just because you build, 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 like my story, good at sport, good at school, what I went through, and then suddenly, bang, does not compute. Shit, how do I, like, marriage failure? She said, Andrew, this will make you richer. This will make you stronger in what you're doing. You just don't realise this yet. And mm-hmm. then rather than, and, and, and again, Everyone's different, but rather than talking about how sad I was, where I was, she found a blend with some some triage, but she gave me some steps to focus on and tapped into my goal-oriented behaviour, so mm-hmm. I felt better. And she told me you have to get out on your bike twice. I wasn't cycling. I was I was in that river in Egypt, mm-hmm. jail, uh, called denial, floating in that river mm-hmm. in Egypt, and I was living on a diet of fast food, alcohol, and speed dating, and it was a Band-Aid mm-hmm. over a wound that just wasn't healing. Mm-hmm. And I told Jill some of the behaviours, and she said, well, yeah, why don't you try this? So she just gave me a few milestones to focus on each week, and because I'm goal-oriented, I went back two weeks later. I'd done a few. I'm like, huh, 
great. Then I went back a couple of weeks later and I'd done a few. So she built this real momentum with me. And then, mm. then we could work on both sides, some goal-oriented behaviour, so something to work towards, and also looking at, yeah, there's some areas you probably need to change, and that's mm-hmm. the iOS upgrade. So it was um, just wonderful that I got to meet her. And I feel for people, what if they don't meet a job mm. and, and, and they don't have someone to help them work it out because mm-hmm. it's hard. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy to hear that you had that experience and that opportunity for, let's say, a reparative therapeutic relationship to break down the myths of this is not helpable. And, you know, it's human behaviour. I just am so incredibly surprise, surprise, passionate about the fact that we we do respond in such predictable ways you as a person who relishes control, who is absolutely a high performer, plus, plus, plus. And when you're good, you're freaking brilliant, right? And here you had a situation, control has been taken away or control, I'm I'm feeling like my, my um, modus operandi has just been like, completely discombobulated right and so we turn to fight flight or need for control and numbing 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 is a way to re-engage that sense of control when those emotions are really plummeting um so denial she's your she's your good and then thank for everyone listening do you notice what this woman just did she didn't call me a control freak she said relishes control. That's very clever. I like the way you mean that because <laughs> I, I, I was and, and sometimes my, my stress response does go to wanting to control because I fix it. You know, it's what I've built a reputation And it's on. a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. When you're in control, you are phenomenal. You know, this is the challenge of um, Olympians. This is the challenge of outstanding performers is when – when individuals are in control, we 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 are like hell yeah, this is absolutely brilliant. But when something happens that puts a chink in our armor, and especially if it's something that we cannot get a control grip over, like a physical injury or 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 a breakup of a relationship or whatever it is, we clutch at straws to re-engage control, and you know, the, the the strategies that you were turning to, those self-sabotaging behaviours of, I think you said, numbing it through, like, fa- sex, fa- fast say, food numbing it through. And another word that starts with F, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, um, there's so much, so much stuff there, and I'm thrilled that you shared that experience. Thank you for leaning in, and thank you for sharing, you know, the power of therapy done well. Um, really, really awesome stuff. Okay, so moving through that, the wisdom of trauma, what were the lessons learned? Oh, so many. The lessons learned is everyone has ups and downs and you are just so much more approachable, connectable, normal when you are prepared to show that life's not always perfect. And it was just, it was a perfect storm for me, uh, being a high achiever at school, eldest child, having success, you know, going well in sport. It was just, it was all, I was just building the story. I'm the high performer. 
hadn't had adversity. And, and, and we know this in sport. Talent scout is looking at two kids. One's got the hyphenated, you know, Barrington Jones, mum and dad have dropped them off in the Range Rover, really good athlete. And then you look at another scrappy kid whose parents broke up and has had a bit more hardship. The, the, the talent scout will pick the kid that comes from hardship any time because they've been pressure tested and they've bounced back. Mm. I hadn't had that. I hadn't been pressure tested. Mm. Well, big thing I also learned, I was not saying that mate of mine who asked me to come and look at him speak, and I was like, oh, no, I'll punch you in the guts if you say that again. Let me be vulnerable. Mm. But I learned naturally when you tell people you've had some stuff-ups and mistakes and U-turns, they just look at you in a whole different way. Mm. And not not in a – I started on this because I, I do see this as being overused, the, the vulnerability. And this wasn't from a marketing point of view at all, although it did help massively. I just found my business went to a whole different level. But just from a connectivity point of view and a meaning point of view, and there's, there's – Four guys that I went to school with, and every year we have what's called a offsite, a husband offsite. Mm. And, and, and you can't write this content, but it's Ego, Mario, Lapo, and Dino. Uh, I, they started calling me Mayo at offsite, but it didn't work. So it was just Maisie. But yeah, my, my four mates from Dubbo with an <laughs> O on the end of their name. And what I've noticed over the years is we've moved from talking about, have you got a girlfriend or what's happening here to last offsite we had, which was, was it this year? Uh, I could just think of it. One of my athletes had a fight. It was May this year. And we were on a houseboat on the Gold Coast. And the boys are just openly talking about some of the problems and what they've got. And I just noticed, hey, it's so nice now that we can have this chat. And it's not like we're there just saying life shit, but it's a blend now. You know, they talk about Lasada ratios for every negative exchange in a relationship. You want to have at least five. And that's a nice, healthy blend of you know, a, a normal relationship. And I think it's like that with my mates now. And for every stupid story we reminisce about the idiots we were in our 20s and early 30s or the success we've all had different parts of our lives, there's some realness there. Mm. And that's and that's nice. And mm-hmm. and and probably my generation are on the cusp of that. I, I look at my son, as I said earlier, oh, they're so in touch with their feelings. Like and and, and what I love with the sporting uh, work I do. So we're in the off-season as we record. Off-season for two teams I'm working with, the mighty Manly Seagulls in the NRL and the New South Wales Waratahs, who I've just started working with in uh, Super Rugby. And we're doing a six-week program in mental skills up until Christmas so we can front-load these skills. And this is the language I'm now allowed to use in NRL. How freaking awesome is that? Mm. So we are front-loading these skills in a non-pressurised environment and Mm. we're talking about self-awareness and Mm. identity and we're talking about self-talk and how the human brain has a bias towards negativity. And when I did this module, I call it a mind gym. And I just had guys in there, big, tough guys looking, going, oh, acknowledging. I just think, I just love that I can share this with these young men. It's going to help them play better footy, yeah. But my goal with every athlete I work with, Joe, is that they have skills in life. Mm-hmm. And then we're talking about energy management and we're going to do imagery. And then I'm bringing in one or two athletes I've worked with to show how they're using this on the global stage. And how freaking awesome is that? And then and when I talk to a young athlete, I can talk about stuff I've done that worked and stuff I've studied, but also the shitty mistakes I've made along the way. Mm. And it's just, I, I just find it's a gift that now we're a, we've you know, got this opportunity to work with athletes and talk mm-hmm. about mental skills in a normalised way. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, helps sport, absolutely. Don't don't get me wrong. You don't get these jobs if you're not focused on performance. Mm-hmm. So if I said to Anthony Seabon, my coach, oh, I just want everyone to feel better, um, I, I'd have a very interesting conversation. That's a <laughs> byproduct, right? It's still a performance base, but mm-hmm. it helps you be a better human. Yeah, it's some of my favourite work. Um, I just absolutely, absolutely love it. I love hearing you talk about it. And I I just, you know, when we have these experiences and, you know, you and I, we, we've talked in our, in our walk and talks at Centennial Park and about um, you and you approaching it from a certain perspective, me approaching it from a certain perspective, but ultimately the beauty is that human beings are all in it together. And so, you know, whether you're a CEO of a global business or whether you are an elite athlete and an Olympian or, a, um, you know, a footy, a footy player, it, it just doesn't matter because ultimately we're all in it together and the toolkit works for everyone. And um, so mental skills and recognizing the other thing that we've talked about repeatedly, you and I, is how um, it's the the mental skills, the mental fitness element and the high performance element, the tools are one and the same because it's the capacity to focus your mind, the ability to move out of threat into your goals and into high performance, focusing on effort and taking yourself out of um, you know, the the fear of an unhelpful or unpleasant outcome, how these sorts of mental skills really optimise performance at next level. But it also happens to be the same tools that help to take an individual out of anxiety, stress, low mood, burnout. So how bloody good is that? Well, <laughs> when, when we were, were flipped and I was interviewing you, that was... There are a couple of big takeaways. One was when you spoke about the two different pathways for anxiety, and I've, I've quoted you recently on that. And the other one was when you said the, the same skills, whether you're a high performer, if someone's got anxiety or depression, it's it's similar skills. It's just got a different utility. Yes. And I, th- I think about that. I just I worked with one of our friend's daughters who's in year 12 in the HSC, and I gave her some mm-hmm. basic cognitive reframing strategies and some mindfulness-based acceptance around that negative voice that comes into an exam. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. there you are. Huh, you're back. Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, not now. I've got an exam on English. This is a really shitty time. And you can name it to frame it. You can give it a name. That's what I do with some of my athletes. Someone you like, but they're a, they're a, they're a pain in the ass. you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a nice pain in the ass. You know, F off, Teddy. Come back later tonight. I've got all the time in the world. So when you see a few of these skills with one of my mate's daughters, and then you see at the high end of the sport, a lot of the, the athletes I work with is literally taking on the world. is going to be competing around the world. And then I'll look at with NRL and I'll look at with some of the people I work with, CEOs, or you do a workshop and then someone comes up later, you see at an airport, like that workshop you did in the Hunter Valley and you taught me that stuff. I thought you were full of shit, but I did it. My missus, this actually happened. My missus said to me, I don't know what's happened to you, but you're a different man. And I just love hearing that. I'll, I'll give you one. I won't mention his name because I don't have um, approval. But I, I talk about the power of reflective practice as you do, if you can start to coach thyself. And everyone says to journal. And what I've noticed with a lot of athletes I work with, they're, they're not natural writers. This has got nothing to do with intellect. It's just that they're probably used to using a mobile phone and they don't sit and write or they're not you know, at uni, they're, they're physical. And so I'd ask my athletes the last few years to journal. Some would, 
and a fair few wouldn't. So I said to one of my guys, like, how do you best record info? He said, oh, easy, mate. He said, I'll, I'll use my mobile. He calls me bro. I'll use my mobile, bro, and I'll just record a message. And I, and I just do it in real time. And that's how I capture it and I play it back. He said, you know, you, you talk about when you journal and you see your crazy monkey mind and you read it and go, who hijacked my brain? He said, I just do that with some of the messages. And I'm like, oh, thank you. What a gift. I've got this really aware player who mm. said, yeah, writing is not my thing. So now I actually say for reflective practice, you can write it down or you can capture it on audio. And so I get now some of my athletes to, to record the audio and send it to me. And it's just beautiful. And you hear their mind processing and they're getting used to it. Mm. So just using these tools in different ways and, and then looking at different learning styles. So that's something I'm focusing on more now is trying to understand different learning styles because mm. one size does not fit all. So have, mm. have you ever thought that? Like, Because we, we all have been taught reflective practice journaling, but that mm -hmm. doesn't work for a lot of people. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's about recognizing uh what what works for the individual and adapting and adapting you know emotional intelligence in in the most fundamental aspects of emotional intelligence is is the capacity to adapt based on the needs of the other person um, and the power of uh, awareness and reflection on ourselves and on the other person. So it's the meta skills, it's the meta skills in coaching, it's that third person perspective, and it's constantly accountable to self um, to, to be adapting and to not impose your own lens, your own frame of reference, but deep empathy to align to what, what works best for the other person. Um, uh, so yeah, so much, so much there. And, you know, what I love about what you and I've also talked about, um, pre uh, recently is, and I, and I love hearing that you're working with one of your, your mate's daughters, I think you said, um, about the potential to build, um, emotional literacy and these tools and the, the whole toolkit from the ground up and to, you know, to be able to get in there in the school environment and to help kids and teens, to help parents, uh, because the the again the the tools that we use with CEOs and Olympians are the same tools that we can use with preschoolers, kids, teens, parents, um, which is just so incredibly exciting. What would mm. you say to that, Andy? What I would say is it's your fault why I didn't sleep well the other night because we had this conversation and I told you about a, a um, group of principals we're working with that you're you're coming in to help us do some of the work and they're excited about you coming in. We're excited about you know, partnering with you on some of these programs. And you said, Andy, that's just one small part of education. I'm like, oh, she's so right. So I was up at night going, oh my God, this is just in New South Wales. But we're only looking at primary school principals, we've got Catholic education, we've got senior school, and I've started doing the numbers in my head. So what will I say? I was really tired the other morning and it was all because of your fault. Thank you. There's so much opportunity. So, so much, much opportunity. And this is a space that, you know, for me, my heart pulls me. As you know, it's kind of like if you've got the skills to help people, how many freaking people, uh, you know, it's about helping people it's about changing lives and being able to do that on scale is is so tremendously exciting um impact to be able to put some positivity in the world and transform lives when there's so much 
crap out there. Um, so, but what I what I'm really um, fascinated to hear more about because you said earlier um, how much you learn from your clients, and I can totally relate to that. I just adore the work that I do because every person is an opportunity for wisdom and personal growth as well, even though it's very much about, this is not about me. Um, it's very much about, you know, client-centeredness, but there are it's still the learnings. And I can relate to that statement very much in my own children as well, how much I learn from my children. Um, but I'd love to know, if there's any clients that come to mind, whether you can share names, you know, drop a few names. Why the hell not? Um, if you can, if you can share some names or otherwise, what are some of the other areas of wisdom that you have learned from some of the clients you've worked with? I'll tell you a story about a guy named Glenn Capelli, and that'll buy some time to think of which names have I use in a public forum there's a couple in a public forum like you i'll never breach confidentiality there's some people i work with and some people you work with that are you know, popular household names and you don't want to ever disclose that confidentiality uh, but there's a couple i can talk away about but first glenn capelli is this beautiful educator former teacher and you watch glenn keynote and it's part of what you do in your job as well and you're a wonderful keynote presenter thank you but i watch glenn and i go I, I have that imposter syndrome. I can't do that. He's just, he's so gifted in what he does. And he, he said to me many years ago, mate, don't compare yourself to me. He said, yeah, I've, I've honed a set of skills. You're really good in this area. So he actually taught me how to tap into some of my unique skills. So he's a wonderful teacher, wonderful orator. But Glenn talks about how do you package your message for a seven-year-old, a 17-year-old and a 70-year-old? And it's such a, it's, it's a great lesson. When we are young and new, I did this and I see a lot of young trainers because a lot of them will come and have a coffee and say, oh, Maisie, I want to do mental skills and what course should I do? And I've got this soliloquy now. The first time I said to a young guy at the Rabbitohs, it wasn't planned, but I, I went through my life story that I'm giving you and I, and I spent about 10 minutes, you know, be good at sport, not great, multiple state championships, don't go to the next level so you leave talent on the track, study exercise physiology, uh, train thousands of people as a personal trainer, you know, good, not great, then go through marriage breakdown, have cancer, sell your business to KPMG, work around the world, understand blah, blah, uh, have cancer on the way, then go study a coaching psychology master's, go, and I said, and then you're probably ready. And this young guy said to me, oh, fuck, Maisie. I thought it was just a weekend course. <laughs> but the, the more work I do with different areas, and, and I've got to credit Anthony Seabold, our coach at Manly, is great on this. He's, he's always saying, like, get your message, say as little as you can and be as impactful as you can, meaning mm -hmm. less words, less slides, more mm -hmm. punch. So I often think about that. How would I sell a, a model to control your nerves under pressure to a seven-year-old? Mm. How, how would you say to a 17-year-old? And how would you say to a 70-year-old who's got loads of experience and really, really deep cognitive understanding? And mm -hmm. that's what I love. It's the game. And mm -hmm. I, I spend more time on message and thinking about how I'm going to land the message than I do on content now. Mm. And that was a mistake I made as a, uh, a younger practitioner and a lot of people make. You think you've got to learn more, more degrees. You don't. You know, mm -hmm. you, you've got to get a base level. But then how do you spin that message? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And bringing it back to authenticity in that and, and empathy as the superpowers to be able to guide you in that. Um, so powerful and so fabulous. So, oh, my God. You gosh. want some names, don't you? Well, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking we could talk for hours and hours. Um, well, if you got names, why not? So if you think about, uh, let's say, who were some of the key people who have influenced you along the way in your learnings or in your the books that you've read or um, the people you've worked with? What books come to mind? What individuals come to mind? Okay, good question. And, and, and I will go through some of the uh, CEOs because some of them form that category. So the book mm -hmm. for me was The Power. Uh, no, the, um, the Power of Now? No. Um, oh, gosh. Look on, Brandon. Edit this out so I don't sound like a um, moron. Oh, The Power of Full Engagement. So. We'll do that bit again. It, I so just had a brain thing. So the, the book is The Power of Full Engagement, which I read probably 15 years ago. I was working in cricket. I was working at New South Wales Cricket as a strength and conditioning coach. This was before I'd sold a wellbeing business to Accol. So it was a business called, back then, Healthy Business. And mm. I'd done a few stints with the Australian cricket team and was, was helping a mate of mine at the Sydney Swans just for a few fitness running sessions. And I wasn't sure how to have a, a career in sport and in the corporate world. And I saw these two guys, Tony Schwartz and Jim Lua, wrote this book on energy management, spiritual. Mm -hmm. That starts with physical, psychological, emotional, and then spiritual in this pyramid. And I just went, ah. And I can remember reading it in Adelaide over a Christmas period. And going, they're talking to me. Oh, my God, what a wonderful, wonderful book. So that that had a massive impact on my life, that book. Mm, I love that. The power of uh, the mind-body connection and vice versa. And, you know, and clearly now we talk about this a lot. However, they were probably thought leaders in that space around that time, yeah? Um, mm. Amazing. I love that. And anyone else, any other individuals come to mind? Mm. Yeah, there's a guy named Dennis Rudge, and I'll have to send this to Rudgy because I haven't spoken to him for a few years, but he was the CEO of Hobart uh, Rest Point Casino or Rest Point Hotel Casino, WPHC. Mm. And I met Dennis in the gym. Uh, a mate of mine, Dino, who had a gym, Dean Newington, in Hobart, and he said, oh, Maisie, you've got this contract that they want me to do at the casino for a couple of months doing some fitness assessments. He said, mate, I'm too busy. I've opened a new gym at Mornington. Can you... Go do it for me. And he said, I'll just I'll take a little bit off the top. And oh yeah, that sounds great. And I'm in there one morning and this guy comes in, big, strong guy, barrel chest. I'm Dennis. I said, Oh, okay, Dennis, what do you do, mate? He said, Oh, I'm the uh, I, I work here at the hotel. He said he didn't name drop to start with. And I found out a week later he was the CEO. I started coaching Rudgy, he lost a fair bit of weight, got fit. Oh my God, he got me going in my business in Hobart, introduced me to the head of the Heart Foundation. Uh, then Philip Musrid, who was at Treasury. And within nine months, I had all these contracts and my mates are going, how on earth have you done this? And I'm like, oh, it's a great product offering. I was just taking the piss. And, you know, what we're doing, it was all Dennis. So it was just that one person, that that fortuitous moment, and we connected. I had a commodity that he needed. I was younger and, and fitter and had good energy. I couldn't make him younger, but I could make him fitter and have more energy. Mm. He had a commodity that I didn't even realise I didn't have, which I did not know how to talk corporate. And mm. there's another guy, Sean O'Sullivan, from North Forest Products, and 
collectively between Rudgy and Sean just mentored me beautifully. I can remember having coffee with Sean one day. We were at Salamanca. In, in, it was called Machine. It was a laundromat coffee shop. And Sean said, oh, I see a lot of potential in you, young fella. And then, and Sean, I'd yeah, given some work around getting fit and doing weights, and he was getting jacked and loving it. And he said, oh, I want you to start reading the AFR, Financial Review. I said, oh, when, when does that come out? And he just shook his head. <laughs> and like, I didn't know there was a thing called the Australian Financial Review. Like, when does that come out? I thought it was a monthly magazine. So uh, those two were absolutely influential in getting mm-hmm. me started, and I'll forever be grateful. Now, in modern times, a wonderful woman named Shelley Roberts. Shelley's now the global operations manager for Compass. And mm-hmm. I got to work with Shelley in Australia when she was CEO of Compass. And she just taught me just to this this beautiful blend between results and heart. Now you can get results, but you can have beautiful relationships and connections along the way. Mm. Yeah, and that was a gift working with Shelley on that. And isn't it fabulous the power of relationships and the power of connection and how incredibly important that is you know we can have all the skills in the world and as you said earlier all the degrees in the world but ultimately it's the capacity to build these wonderful relationships um, to leverage your skills of course but uh, authentic connection is I think a key message that has come up several times today I've got Um, got one I've got one other and I feel if I don't say this one um, I'll I'll walk away and go oh I should have mentioned buckets but a guy named Mark O'Neill and, and Mark was responsible for me getting back into to sports conditioning or getting back into mental skills because mm. he's a Parramatta, the GM there, and he's a good man, Mark. He um, does so much work behind the scenes that no one knows. And he said that they were advertising. I went through the proper process, but he planted a seed uh, that I could go back into sport and I had the experience. You know, we talk about lag time. So he saw I was ready and I, I, I said, oh, mate, I'll probably need to go and do another degree. He said, fuck me, mate, how many degrees do you need? He said, you're living and breathing this stuff. You just need to catch up with it. And I was like, oh, and then when I got into it, so I I feel very grateful towards Buckets for being ahead of me and and, giving me a friendly push, a little bit of a firecracker, because they may have a crack. And I had to go through the proper process, and it wasn't him who made the decision. Mm. But just sometimes you have people around you who back you, Mm-hmm. And they don't have to, mm. but they, they they just give you a friendly nudge. And mm-hmm. I, I love doing that to other people now. I love paying it forward. But yeah, mm. there, there's there's some people absolutely who've given me just some wonderful gifts along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really fascinating that you say that sort of some of the people, some of the CEOs that I've worked with are some of the best CEOs are the ones that actually are so generous in their desire to um, lift others up and share their knowledge and share their time, actually. Uh, It just really is inspiring when I see these individuals. If you come you come to mind, but I don't necessarily have um, <laughs> permission to disclose their names. We'll, we'll get a um, we'll get a, a disclosure agreement you and I with our clients, so we'll talk about the big dogs, <laughs> the top fifty AS. But lessons from the fifty ASX. Hey, um, do you do you speak German? No, I don't speak German. I speak French, but not German. Yeah, I, I can swear okay in German, but the only other words I know in German 
is schadenfreude and mitfreude and that's exactly what we're talking about so you know schadenfreude or schadenfreude is pleasure through other people's misery but mm. the word we don't hear enough about is the antithesis of that which is mitfreude mm. pleasure through other people's success mm. and even as i reflect upon those names i've given you shelly roberts dennis raj sean o'sullivan and then mark o'neill they all had massive doses of mitfreude they mm. loved seeing other people be successful now they're all they're all individually comfortable where they're at. They've all had individual success, and I sometimes think of this: Do they have met Freud because they've already got success, or were they always like this? Mm, I love that so much, and I think that that actually what is the word mit 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 Freud. Mit Freud. I think Mit Freud is what inspires me so much. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. It's just the joy in seeing other people succeed or seeing other people thrive and move out of challenge and flourish. Um, love that word. But, but you know, you know the, the, the edge on that is, would you have mid-Freud if you weren't in a good spot yourself? Yeah, and the... I just got all deep, which didn't comes I? First, <laughs> which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think all those people were like that from a young age. Actually. Yeah, that would be if we talk about high performance habits and the capacity to move into from from you know through the stages of success. This would potentially be an underlying. Well, we talk to values, right? Values being the driver of high performance. Um, it would potentially tap into underlying values which lead to high performance um what do you think of the values that would underpin mit freud good question it's a hard question yeah um, generosity yeah would generosity kindness, kindness um, a collegiality yes. or a, a connectedness and belonging wanting to mm. see others belong mm. Uh, and, and, what would you say are some of your core values? I'm going through this after Christmas. Can you wait? Can I come back? <laughs> I'm working with a with I a can... guy who's helped me articulate my purpose. Uh, when mm -hmm. I was at KPMG, I was two years into a three-year contract being paid more money than I had ever dreamt of. I wasn't unhappy, but I was there was a disruption. It wasn't about money for me. And I did work with a guy named Richard Burton, who's awesome if anyone needs to work out their purpose. Burdo's the guy. And I've reconnected with Richard to say, hey, just want to dial up my purpose a bit. And I've been thinking more about values. So interesting you ask, because I'm going to go back and redo that. And I think it's it's valuable to go back every couple of years and just refresh, refine. I'm looking at mission, where I'm going, all that stuff. Mm. Um my like a big one for me is playfulness mm. uh, i like having fun and really connects with what i told you about at mm. 35 making sure i have play uh mm. for me learning and, and well I, I put learning growth competitiveness in a bundle mm. i think the right type of competition uh competition where you stop smell the flowers and that healthy competition rather than perfectionism is a big one um and 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 i am big on achievement and i don't hide that um but it's not achievement at all costs mm, and, yeah. sorry yeah and and that belonging and connection is a big one so in fact if i look up on my wall here the values for our business is vitality diversity curiosity people focus which is connected 
and competitive. Mm. How beautiful is that? And yes, lots and lots and lots of shared values there, um, which I think is uh, it, it really resonates a lot of what you say in my heart and in my mind. Um, it's just such an absolute joy to to connect with you. If you were to share sort of some key messages in 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 summary for people who are experiencing mental health challenges, whether it's depression or anxiety or stress out there who are listening right now, Andy, what are some of the things that you would love to share? Yeah, a really nice way to, to wrap. First is no man, no woman is an island. Uh, from, from my experience, N equals one, and what I see with so many others, higher propensive men, but women do this as well, is we get caught in our ego. We get caught in the person we think we need to be. Don't run that narrative. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help others around you. So you're not an island. Reach out and get support or reach out and ask for support. Mm. And the second one, and this is, I'm so passionate on this, and anyone, if they follow me, whether I do media work, record a podcast, are in a podcast, uh, work with athletes, but it's reps and sets. You've got to do the reps and sets. Yeah. So I hadn't done enough cross-training on my mental skills reps and sets before 39. Yeah, it had been very one, one-sided. It's like the guy that does only upper body building, okay? <laughs> well, to his humor, saying, hey, mate, you got to do leg day. It's important to do legs. There's a whole lot of reasons why. But you, you, you've got to train these mental skills reps and sets in a non-pressurised environment. Mm. And, and, and you and I, today, without even planning, we've spoken and interwoven around three different areas on when you need mental skills, when you're struggling, when you're below the line. So if you're feeling anxious or depressed or you're just in a funk, knowing to have some of those mental skills and to, to draw on them, it's really important. But the last thing you feel like doing when you're anxious, depressed or really fatigued is putting time, energy or attention into learning new skills. You're like, get stuffed. I just feel horrible. So I think doing those reps and sets in a non-pressurised environment is really important. So then mm -hmm. if you are below the line, if they're working with a, a clinical psychologist or you can try and use some of these skills yourself. Now, the easy ones to, to frame is for athletes because there's more people like me in teams helping people normalise pressure, helping people you know, flourish under pressure, but also knowing you can't be on 24-7. Mm. So I often say that my lab in putting this together is high-performance sport because yeah, you've got 80 minutes on a Saturday in rugby league or union. I just met with a guy this morning and he's a, he's a, I'm really looking forward to meeting with him. He's an MMA fighter and he's going to be big um, if he gets it right. And he's his weapon of a guy. And then we finished and he hugged me and said, that was one of the best conversations I've ever had, bro. So you, you, you learn in this high pressure environment and, and it is, it's, it's comfort. If this guy doesn't get some of the skills I think I can help him with, he may not get to that level of professionalism and, and go on the overseas stage. So he mm -hmm. has to do it. But where this has just so much agency and utility is in that mid-range. When you're going okay, not great, yeah? So if you're below the line, having these skills can absolutely help you get above. If you're an elite athlete, I think, and I'm biased, you have to have these because we say there's three things you can train as a high-performance athlete or any performance artist, entertainer. One is your craft, two is your body, three is your brain. But if mm. you're not good at your craft and you haven't got a body fit, fast, powerful, strong, don't see me. But that third edge can absolutely help you. But I really think the opportunity is in that, that <coughs> mid-range group because if people are struggling, 
we're, we're much more open now to someone getting therapy in the high-end group a lot of teams most teams are tuning into having performance psychologists or doing mental skills it's like the swinging voters for those people in the middle going yeah yeah i'm i'm not below the line but i'm not where i really need to be that's where i get excited because this can make a huge difference huge difference how brilliant is that i love that summary and to end with a big question um you've done so much already i'm super curious where to from here where what's the next chapter andy well i don't know i should have this answer and go well year two horizon year three horizon i actually don't know and that's part of going back and working with richard at the moment i wear three hats in my career so it's ceo of strive stronger digital physical and psychological well-being startup uh andrewmay.com doing keynotes doing a podcast writing a book every few years and doing uh, coaching with high-end execs and founders and then a mental skills practice that started a you know, bit of fun when buckets told me I, I was ready for it and now that's grown more and more what i'd love to do is just to work less but i love what i'm doing so i, I feel probably nine or 12 months going at a level that's not sustainable and then stepping aside as ceo of strive stronger we've had this chat internally so I still stay involved, but to keep the energy, to keep the passion, to make it sustainable. So I don't have a clear plan. So that's what I'm seeing Richard for. But I've got to summarise. Otherwise, you think, God, this guy's all over the place. I want to keep doing keep doing what I'm doing, but narrowing the focus. I want to do more mental skills at the high level. But then I also want to scale the living daylights out of that. And then similar to some of your goals and make that information available to the masses. And that that shit keeps me up at night, like you did the other day when you're talking yeah. about the education department. Amazing, amazing. So beautiful to chat with you today. Thank you so very much for being on the show. And, yeah, can't wait to continue the conversations. Take care. Huh? Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, I've enjoyed the questions. It's been very reflective. Yeah, you're good. You've done this before, huh? <laughs> <laughs> from the heart, from the heart. Thank you. Um, take care. Beautiful to chat. Bye for now. Yeah, wow. You got me thinking and going and um, different places.